All right, we're in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to open to chapter one or navigate on your phone or tablet, Revelation chapter one. Our text this morning is going to be verses nine through 20. The topic, while suffering his own persecution on the penal island of Patmos, John writes to encourage the churches to patiently endure the pressures that they were experiencing. The title of our message, Patmospheric Pressure. Let's have, well, that's the title. So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. You promised it would not return void. That means that when we hear it, when we encounter it, it has the power to change lives, change hearts, to refresh, to rebuke, to encourage, to give us uh, endurance, all the things that we need and some of the things that we don't know that we need. More than anything, Lord, we want to see Jesus. This book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, we want to see him on every page. Whether he's the main topic or not, he is the main topic. And so keep us on task, Lord, as we go through uh, these verses this morning and this study. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. amen. There's a great line of dialogue in the film, The Ghost in the Darkness. John Patterson has just miserably failed having taken an untested rifle into battle. It jammed on him. And Charles Remington says to him, we have an expression in prize fighting. Everyone has a plan until they've been hit. Well, my friend, you've just been hit. Late in the first century, the apostle John had taken several hits from the Roman Empire ruled by Domitian. His latest was banishment to the island of Patmos. On the mainland, the churches were suffering pressures and persecutions of their own that were only going to get worse. The hits would just keep on coming. You and I have taken some hits in our Christian life, and the hits may keep on coming. Is there something we can learn from this passage of God's word to help us? Well, of course there is, and I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus is unveiled as he lights you up in your tribulation, and number two, Jesus is unveiled as he lights us up as his temple. Let's take a look, first of all, in verse nine at being lit up in tribulation. No one's spiritual plan includes getting hit. We think God would not ever allow certain things to occur in our lives. If I were to ask you to make a list uh, of things that God might allow to happen in your life and things God would never allow to happen, um, it, it would be a very interesting spiritual exercise. But I think whether we would do that or not, I think we all believe that there's certain things that God would not allow. Then they occur sometimes in isolation, but other times they seem like a flurry of punches. To continue with our boxing metaphor, when a fighter gets hit and can't recover, we say it's lights out. For some people, it can be lights out when they get hit with troubles. They may not blame God, they may not fall away from the Lord, but their walk certainly suffers as they wonder, why me? John is gonna show us that taking a hit can be lights on. We're catching up with the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He's an old man. He's in his 90s, banished and subjected to forced labor. He'd be on Patmos for about 18 months. There's something you need to know about the events preceding his banishment. In what he called the second persecution under Domitian, John Fox, author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, wrote, 
Among the numerous martyrs that suffered during this persecution was John, who was boiled in oil and afterward banished to Patmos. Afterward? Boiling is a very slow, incredibly painful form of execution by torture. The condemned is stripped naked and either plunged into already boiling liquid or tied up and placed in a giant cauldron of cold liquid under which the executioner then lights a fire, which heats the liquid until it boils. The liquid used may be oil, water, acid, tar, or even molten lead. Domitian commanded that the apostle John be boiled to death in oil, but John only continued to preach from within the cauldron. Tertullian, an early church figure in his The Prescription Against Heretics, wrote this. He said, How happy is its church on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted to his island exile. Tertullian saw in John's severe tribulation something precious, something to encourage all the churches as they were going through or would go through their own tribulations. He could see the light of Jesus' presence and of his love. Now, this may be a little extreme, but John, in the midst of a pot of boiling liquid, looks a little like a candle wick, does he not? I didn't mean it to be funny. It is kind of funny, but it's okay to laugh since he didn't burn. But like a candle, he shone brightly for Jesus Christ. When John took a hit, it was lights on. And so verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos is some 50 miles off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. It's roughly 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It was an Alcatraz from which there was no escape. I've heard it said that John was forced to work either mining salt or quarrying marble. And did I mention he was 90-something? John's crime, the nefarious activity he was incarcerated for, was the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was boiled and banished for being a Christian. He was sharing as the word of God the testimony Jesus gave about himself that he was God come in human flesh to die on the cross and that he rose from the dead and that there was salvation only in him. He calls himself their brother and companion. John was one of the originals. More than that, he had been invited into the inner circle along with Peter and James. He had laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. He was that close to him. He was an apostle, but he was content to identify with every other Christian as a brother. No more, no less. Only among Christians is there a true equality. We might even say in Christ all men are recreated equal by the new birth. I might have a different office or a function or a talent or a gifting than you, but we are all on absolutely equal ground when it comes to the love of God that is ours through Jesus Christ. Because he is God, Jesus can't love me any more or any less than he loves you. And it is with an everlasting love that is super abundant. In context, John was pointing out that it could just as easily be one of his brothers or sisters suffering on Patmos. He was identifying with them in their own troubles as if his tribulation was no worse than theirs. And that's a thought also behind him calling them companions. They were accompanying one another on the road to heaven, 
sharing each other's experiences in a way that encouraged all of them. John described our time on earth journeying heavenward as brothers and companions as the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think that trio of phrases put together might mean. We are promised tribulation on our journey heavenward. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. This isn't referring to the seven-year tribulation. I know it isn't referring to that for many reasons, but especially because a little later in this book, Jesus promises to keep the church from going through the tribulation that is coming on the entire planet to try the inhabitants of the earth. The tribulation John is talking about here is the trials and troubles that we can count on in our lives, especially just for being believers. At the same time we are promised tribulation, we are assured of the kingdom. Nothing is more certain than that Jesus will return for us to then return with us to establish the literal kingdom of God on earth in the future. We live in between that time of Jesus' first and second comings, and this time of waiting for the kingdom is to be characterized by the patience of Jesus Christ. This isn't a big dose of patience that you get by merely asking. In fact, if you ask for patience, you're going to get trouble because the Bible says tribulation works patience. That's how patience is developed in your life. God has to allow you to go through something that makes you reveal patience and his grace. And so the patience of Jesus Christ means that you shine as a light in the darkness of your troubles in such a way that it can only be understood as being supernatural. It can only be by the grace of God. Jesus can light you up in your tribulations the way he did John in the sense that others see him in you and through you. When you take a hit, it's going to be lights out or lights on. As brothers and companions, let's encourage one another to be lights that are on for all to see. Now, as we go into verses 10 through 20, Jesus is unveiled as he lights us up as his temple. Let me shed a little light on the Jewish temple and its furnishings. After washing their hands and feet at a laver, the priests could enter the holy place, which is the first room in the temple. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place, the menorah, table of showbread, and the golden altar of incense. The menorah is also called the candlestick or the golden lampstand, and it stood at the left side of the holy place, was hammered out of one piece of pure gold. There's going to be a test on that portion. I want to see if you're paying attention. The lampstand had a central branch from which three branches extended from each side, forming a total of seven branches. Seven lamps holding olive oil and wicks stood on top of the branches. Each branch looked like that of an almond tree containing buds and blossoms and flowers. The priests were instructed to keep the lamps burning continuously. Here's the uh, instruction from Leviticus 24. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. Now, I gave you this background because in just a moment, we're going to see Jesus presented as if he were a priest tending the lampstand, only there are seven lampstands, and they represent the seven churches that John is told to write to. And so verse 10, 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Is the Lord's day a reference to Sunday or is it signifying the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment upon the earth that is prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, either John was having an exceptional Sunday in the spirit or he was transported forward in time by the Holy Spirit to see the events of the day of the Lord. And it's hard to see why John would make such a big deal out of the fact that it was Sunday. Besides, Sunday was never referred to as the Lord's Day in the Bible and not in church history until much later. This is the only place in the Bible we find this expression. And just because we call Sunday the Lord's Day, we can't read that back into this text. And so it almost certainly doesn't mean Sunday. And considering that this book records the events of the day of the Lord in minute detail, I mean, that's what this book is about, and that John probably received these visions over a longer period of time than just one day, I say he was transported by the Spirit to witness the events he described. And so he was in the day of the Lord is really the way that it should read. He heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. It was a loud voice. Trumpets, he compared it to a trumpet because trumpets were commonly used by the Jews to gather together the people of God and give them instruction. Describing Jesus' voice like a trumpet in conjunction with the mention of the seven churches in the next verse simply but powerfully means that he was gathering the churches to hear something very special. This was a call to worship, we might call it, or, or just a call to come in and pay attention to the Lord's voice. And so he says in verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Once again, we're told that Jesus is God's entire alphabet from A to Z, and therefore every word he wants to say to mankind. There's nothing that God wants to say to us that we cannot find already in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was the first in that he created all things, he is the last in that he will bring all things to their prophesied conclusions. John was to write one book to these seven churches. Even though there are individual letters to each of these churches, everything in the whole book is for all of them, and of course, it's for all of us. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, maybe it's just me, but I was stunned by something in this verse. It's something John doesn't see, not at first. What do you expect John to see the minute he turns around? Amen. You expect him to see Jesus, the source of the voice that he just heard. He doesn't see Jesus at first. He sees the lampstands, then he sees Jesus. Even though in verse 16, we're going to be told his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, John had seen the lampstands first. You ever make the mistake of looking into the sun? Now you're blind. But anyway, and then you can't see anything else because it's really bright. And so the Bible says here, Jesus was like the sun, uh, just amazing in his brightness. But when John turned around and looked at that, 
he saw the lampstands that he shouldn't have been able to see. What's the significance of this? As we're going to see, the lampstands are the churches on the earth. This is a strong reminder that Jesus is seen, he is unveiled to the world as he lights up his church. He's not seen directly, he's seen indirectly as he lights up his church. The church is a very important entity to Jesus Christ. Not just individual Christians, there is a church universal we might say in the fact that, there are, that you know, all Christians belong to the body of Christ, but Jesus is talking about specific local assemblies, uh, and they shine the light of his glory to the world. Verse 13, he says, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Jesus appears in his ministry as our great high priest, continually tending to the lampstands. Each of the seven churches and every other church can count on him to keep them lit up. If I'm listening to this in the first century, I'm realizing that whatever I'm going through, Jesus is able to keep me lit. He has the provision, he has the power, whatever it is we need, and that's the same today. In verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, each of the ways Jesus is described is terminology borrowed from the Old Testament books of either Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah. Always remember that this book is filled with the Old Testament. Many people misunderstand the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ because they don't see in it all of the Old Testament history that leads up to it. Now, I was going to comment about each descriptor, but I think doing so would only limit our appreciation. I was studying, and I thought, now what, you know, feet of bronze, you read all the commentaries, and, and people have a lot of different ideas of what bronze signified and why Jesus would have feet of bronze, and, and they're all good ideas. And then I realized something, that uh, John sees Jesus in his role as our great high priest protecting us and providing us even in the midst of our tribulations, and since Jesus is everything God wants to say from A to Z, and since he being the first will oversee everything until he at the last brings it to pass, then I only need to look at him. And so, for example, uh, when I look at him, I'm going to see something that I need to see, and it could be uh, uh, any number of things based on this description. For example, let's just take his white as wool hair. White hair can signify wisdom. We talk about the wisdom of the aged. As you get older and your hair turns white, you have a lot more wisdom, or at least you should. He's eternal, so no one is as aged as Jesus Christ. And so this is telling, this part of his description, his hair is white as wool, is telling me if I need wisdom, I only need to ask him. I only need to look to him. I don't need to really go anywhere else but to him, and by him I mean in prayer, through his word, those kinds of things. But his hair is also white as snow. And that reminds me that though my sins be as scarlet, he can and does nevertheless forgive them. And so that's a little bit of a different take on his white hair. 
His white as wool, snow-like hair is also obviously very beautiful. Jesus has got to be the most beautiful person that you're ever going to see. There are times his sheer beauty will encourage me as I recall that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And so really, the bottom line here, what I'm saying is that each of these descriptors, each attribute of the risen Jesus Christ has almost limitless application and significance. I could spend all morning just talking about his hair and the different ways that it ministers to us. And so the point isn't to understand why he was described in this particular way. The point is, look to Jesus, because in him and through him, you'll find everything that you need. We should say a word about this sharp two-edged sword described as coming out of his mouth. It's borrowed from Isaiah 49, where we read, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. That is a passage promising that Israel's Messiah would bring Israel back into relationship with the God that they had forsaken. And Jesus will, in fact, restore the nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, to their God through the events of the tribulation that is described in this book. His mouth sword also anticipates Jesus' second coming to the earth and his rule over it because we'll read in Revelation 19, 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And so it's, it's a figure of speech borrowed from the Old Testament to tell us that the Lord has the authority to bring Israel back to himself and then to rule the world. So it's a promise of the kingdom of God on the earth. Although they were suffering, and many would suffer unto death, when we get to the letters to the seven churches, Jesus is just going to plainly say, some of you are going to die. One day, Jesus would be coming back to establish his kingdom, and we will be a part of that. Suffer now, reign later, meantime, shine forth, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. If you're in the crowd that is watching the apostle John be boiled alive, and he just sits there like he's in a jacuzzi preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, kicking back, that has an effect on you. In fact, there are uh, testimonies in, the book, in Fox's Book of Martyrs of Roman soldiers who laid down their weapons during certain martyrdoms, uh, not necessarily of John, but of other saints, uh, and became Christians and followed them to martyrdom because of what they saw in those believers. And so verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell as his feet is dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus alleviates John's fears by once again reminding him that he is the first and the last. It's as if Jesus were saying, remember who I am and you'll see I got this. Now I mostly feel as though Jesus doesn't got this when it comes to the troubles I experience. But that's only because I haven't come to their end or to my end. He will have his way at the last. Uh, and so I cannot interpret my current circumstances by my circumstances. I must interpret them by the word of God and the promises of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, I know that we win and that I'm coming back with the Lord uh, and I'm gonna live forever with him. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, 
and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Lives here means lived continuously. It's another statement of eternal existence, as if we needed a reminder, but Jesus is God. Although eternal as God, Jesus was dead. It means that he became dead as a man in his incarnation. But he rose from the dead, and as the God-man, he is alive forevermore. Now, our two biggest problems were death followed by Hades. Taxes doesn't make the list. (laughs) Death followed by Hades, because that's the order of things. You died, and you went to Hades. Death is portrayed as a relentless power that all of us are subject to. Hades, technically, is the temporary abode of the human soul immediately after physical death. Now, follow me on this, because... This is one of the areas where people are the most confused uh, in all the Bible. When Jesus died, he descended into Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades is described in Luke chapter 16 as a temporary abode for souls, and it was divided into two, we'll call them compartments for lack of a better word, separated by a great gulf. One compartment was a place of suffering and torment for non-believers, The other compartment was called paradise. It was a blissful waiting area for believers. When Jesus said to the thief on the cross just before they died, today you will be with me in paradise, he was talking about being in the paradise compartment of Hades. Jesus descended there, the Bible says, and he took all the believers to heaven. Now when a believer dies, He does not go to Hades. He does not go to the paradise section of Hades. He goes immediately to heaven. To be absent from the body, Paul the Apostle says, is to be present with the Lord. And so your physical body, whether it's in the ground or in a a jar or blown to smithereens, uh, is awaiting resurrection while your spirit is in heaven. The souls of non-believers still go to Hades to await a final resurrection and then to be cast alive into hell, which in this book will be described for us as the lake burning with fire. Jesus has the keys of Hades and of death. He has the authority over them. Death may take you before the rapture, but you need not fear it because you go to be with the Lord in heaven and not to Hades and never to hell. Now pay close attention to verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. This gets the valuable verse award for Revelation. This is Jesus Christ's own commentary on the book. He gives us an outline for studying and understanding the book. The Revelation of Jesus Christ is not an impossibly difficult closed book that no one can really understand. It is one of the few books, in fact, that gives you its own outline. And anybody who outlines this book needs to follow this outline because it's Jesus' outline. Write the things you have seen. What John had seen was the vision of the risen Lord walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks with seven stars in his right hand. Chapter 1 is the record of the things John had seen. Chapters two and three are gonna contain the second division, the things which are. The seven churches, which we'll see represent the entire church age, those are the things which are. Then, from chapters four through the end of the book, we read about the things which will take place after. We'll see the church resurrected and raptured to heaven. 
We'll see the seven-year Great Tribulation. We'll see the Battle of Armageddon. We'll see the second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll see the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth called the Millennium. We'll see the final judgment of Satan, of the fallen angels, and of non-believing humanity. We'll see the destruction of this universe. We'll see the creation of a new universe. And we'll get a glimpse of our lives in eternity with God. And we'll do it in order. This is a remarkably chronological book. It doesn't bounce all over the place like the Old Testament does, so you have to wonder where you're at on the prophetic timeline. In fact, it gathers together all of the information from the Old Testament to give you the proper chronology of events, exactly what you can expect, and it's in the order I just gave you. And so it's an incredible verse for understanding Revelation. The mystery of the seven stars, verse 20, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, they are the seven churches. A mystery in the Bible, something previously concealed that is now revealed. If you read like a mystery novel, it would be like just reading the last page or the last chapter and having the mystery revealed. And so it's not something hidden, it was hidden, now it's revealed. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angels could just as easily have been translated messengers because that's what angels are. And so this has caused some confusion. Are these seven messengers supernatural beings? Are they angels or are they human beings? The majority of commentators identify them as humans, not supernatural angels, and I would agree with that. Just the fact that John is the one who gives the revelation to these messengers to deliver to the churches tells me they are not angels, they are human, because human beings like John don't tell angels what to do. They are God's messengers. So Jesus could send an angel to talk to John, but John's not going to send seven angels to talk to the church. And so these are human beings who brought the message of the revelation to the churches that they were assigned to. And it makes the most sense to me that these messengers are, in fact, the pastors of those churches. So I expect to be treated like an angel. (laughs) I am your angel. Think about that for a minute and then forget I said that. This is not the angel you were looking for, but anyway. Your body is the temple of God on the earth today, the temple of his Holy Spirit, in the sense that when you are born again, God the Holy Spirit indwells you. But so is the church, the body of Jesus Christ, his temple on the earth. When we gather together, we are corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the earthly temple, we saw the Jewish priest would refill the bowl of the lampstand with oil, and he would trim the wicks so that it was lit up continuously. As far as oil, Jesus has promised his church an unending flow of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is represented by the olive oil. And there's no way that we can run out of oil. There's never going to be an oil crisis uh, in the church. There might be one in the world. Gas prices might fluctuate. We might wonder how, how many dinosaurs really were there that died and where are the La Brea tar pits anyway and all that kind of stuff. We might, but when it comes to the church and oil, there is an unending supply because the oil of the church is the Holy Spirit of God given on the day of Pentecost, given abundantly. You can't ever run out 
of him. You can burn and burn and burn forever uh, with the spirit. A wick needs to be trimmed in order for the lamp to burn its brightest. But I don't even think this is something we do. I think there's a hint in this that it's our tribulations that Jesus uses to trim us because that is what produces patience if we will allow it and causes us to burn the brightest. And so the only thing I have to do here is realize that the Lord is going to use the circumstances of my life to the light of his glory, whatever they are, whether they're good, whether they're bad in my estimation of things. Whether I'm just minding my own business as the pastor of Ephesus, as John was in his late 80s, early 90s, or whether I'm going to be arrested, thrown into a boiling pot of oil, and then taken out to the island of Patmos uh, to be banished. And I think immediately we think of banishment as something better than boiling. I do, anyway. But, but you know, banishment is a terrible thing, too, because now you have no voice. Now you can't minister to anybody. Hey, if this guy is going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ out of a boiling cauldron, we're going to put him someplace where he can't talk to anybody. And there's, you know, have you ever been really alone and, and just maybe even abandoned or had that sense? I know some of you have felt that. You feel useless and all of these kinds of things. And then God comes along and he says, I'm gonna transport you to the day of the Lord. I'm gonna show you what's gonna happen and you're gonna tell everybody and, and people are gonna read this book for centuries and driving. You can't stop guys like this. Guys like this are, you know, they're like LED bulbs. I mean, they just keep going, you know. You can't burn these guys out because the Holy Spirit just keeps filling them and, and Jesus keeps trimming their wick no matter what's happening. All they do is yield to him. And so there's nothing here for us to do. Jesus is our great high priest. We're his lamp stands on the earth. He wants to light us up to unveil him, to reveal him to sinners, even to those who in their own way want to boil or banish us. All we have to do is let him. All we have to do is yield and not withdraw and, and not pull back, but stay focused on the real mission. Let's pray.